Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. If a person appears to have been a Christian, but now seems to have lost their salvation, if they're not just wandering and will come back eventually, then I think what we have to conclude is that even though they had the outward appearance of a Christian, they were not actually a Christian. And I will give you one name to support the idea that I'm presenting here, and that name is Judas. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Colossians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 29, in a message titled, Christ in You. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So here we are in our series of studies through Colossians. And so just to kind of remind us of what we read and, and what we previously looked at, uh, we, like the Colossians, who were once alienated from and enemies of God, have now been reconciled to him through the cross. Because of what Jesus did in the body of his flesh upon the cross, we are now and forever will be holy and blameless in his sight. So when God sees us, when God sees you, when God sees me, when God sees all of those who have trusted in Christ, he sees us as holy rather than sinful He sees us as blameless rather than guilty. He sees us as righteous rather than wicked. And he sees us that way because that's how we are in Christ. And and this is something that we need to be reminded of constantly. We, We need to be reminded that positionally before God, we are as righteous as we could possibly be. And what I mean by positionally is the way God sees us. Now, we see each other differently. We look at one another and we can find fault with each other and we can see aspects of unholiness and all of that is just a a reality of of still, you know, living in a a sinful fallen world and still inhabiting uh, bodies of sin. But the important thing to know is that God sees us differently than we see ourselves or we see each other. And so we always have to keep in mind that positional thing, and that's really what Paul is declaring here, that this is now our position. We are no longer enemies estranged from God, but dear children in an up-close and personal relationship with him, This standing is ours and remains ours through faith in Christ. As we trust in Christ, as we believe in Christ, this is how we have this standing before God. And so Paul reminds his readers in the 23rd verse that true faith in Christ is continued faith in Christ. And so he says here, 
if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So faith in Christ, saving faith in Christ, is faith that continues. We sometimes hear about people that seem to have moved away from their faith in Christ. Something's happening in our current cultural moment, something that is known as deconversion stories. And what that is about is that you, you have people, a lot of times people who had some sort of prominence or some sort of recognition, some sort of celebrity status or something like that in the Christian community who claim now to no longer believe what they previously believed. And so they want to tell people their deconversion story. You know, they're sort of like now evangelizing for agnosticism or atheism. And it's really interesting. It's sort of a phenomena that is, has been occurring more recently. But there's a good handful of people who either they were maybe musicians within the Christian music community, or they might have been worship leaders, or they might have been church leaders or authors of books or something like that. There's, there's at least a half a dozen that I could think of that I don't need to mention them by name. But, you know, so they're out there and they're anxious to tell their story of how they no longer believe what they had believed. So this is called a deconversion story. So what about those who seem to have moved away? Because what we're talking about here, and I think what the overall message of Scripture is, is that if you're truly converted, you will remain in Christ. So how do you explain these so-called deconversion stories? Well, I think there's two possibilities. Number one, some of them are actually genuinely saved, but they've fallen into a season of deception and confusion and they've wandered off, but they will return. And I think that's an important thing to recognize. Recently, a somewhat uh, well-known artist, Christian artist, came out as another one who has a deconversion story. And I remember him and his band, they played at an event that we did here quite a few years ago, an outdoor event that we did over at the, um, the Karis building. Uh, this was the band that they wanted to have come. And, and so this guy was the leader of the band. Now he's pretty much renounced his faith and said, you know, he, he no longer believes what he used to believe. But he was willing to have a conversation with Sean McDowell. Sean McDowell, some of you know that name. Some of you recognize the McDowell part of it. He's Josh McDowell's son. He's a professor at Biola University. He's an apologist, just like his father. And Sean and this particular person had a conversation that was moderated by my friend Justin Briley in uh, London. And, and so, you know, they're, they're having a conversation about this. And basically, Sean is, you know, challenging this person's deconversion story. And the thing that I'm, I'm getting at here and the thing that I appreciate with Sean is he did it in a very gentle and gracious way, but w- without pulling any punches when it comes to the facts and when it comes to just the, you know, the reality of, 
what is true and what is not true. But I know Sean's method is with the objective of trying to, to bring the person back in. Sometimes the tendency is to just want to write people off like this. Hey, they, they renounced their faith, so they're now the enemy. We need to just come out and we need to take a hard position against them. And, and I agree, we need to take a hard position in regard to the issues. But when it comes to dealing with the person, we still need to be gracious. We still need to be loving. And we still need to recognize that they quite possibly could still be believers just going through a wilderness time of confusion and deceived to the point where they're thinking, I don't believe this any longer. But you never know. A few years from now, they might come back around and say, I was deluded. I made a mistake. And so we need to pray for those kind of people. So that's one possibility with a deconversion story. The other possibility is that such people have never truly been saved, even though they had an outward appearance of being a Christian. Now, this sometimes is difficult for people. They think, what do you mean this person wasn't really a Christian? Don't you know they wrote this book or they, they wrote these songs or they did these evangelistic crusades or all different types of things they point to to say this person must have been a Christian who has now apostatized, or another way to say that is just that this is a a person who was a Christian who has lost their salvation. But I don't believe the Bible teaches that a Christian can lose their salvation. So if a person appears to have been a Christian, but now seems to have lost their salvation, if they're not just wandering and will come back eventually, then I think what we have to conclude is that even though they had the outward appearance of a Christian, they were not actually a Christian. And I will give you one name to support the idea that I'm presenting here that I think is irrefutable proof that that can happen. And that one name, every one of us know, and that name is Judas. Judas. If anybody appeared to be a Christian, it was Judas. Judas appeared not simply to be a Christian. He appeared to be a devout follower of Jesus Christ. He was counted among the 12 apostles. But Jesus said about him that he never believed. He never believed. Jesus made this amazing statement speaking to all of the the 12. He said, have I not chosen the 12 of you and one of you is a devil. So you see, the whole time Judas was basically pretending, and he fooled everybody except the Lord. And he perhaps even fooled himself. But remember when Jesus said tonight, uh, you know, there around the table at the, what we call the Last Supper, Jesus said, tonight one of you is going to betray me. And they all looked around the room and wondered who could it be. They even began to question themselves. Nobody looked at Judas and said, that's him. I know it's him. I could tell he's a fake apostle. No one knew that. So you see, it it is possible. There are people, there have been people that have had an outward demonstration, so to speak, of having faith, but have not genuinely been truly a a child of God. So 
we have to remember Jesus even taught us this, that the vine must remain in the branch. John chapter 15. So continuing to believe in and follow Christ, that is where our security comes from. As Jesus said, a branch that is cut off from the vine withers, dies, and is thrown into the fire. And so one cannot abandon Christ and expect to reap the benefits of his work on the cross. And so we could sum it up like this. Continuance is the test of the reality of one's faith. Continuance is the test. How do we know that we're saved? We continue to follow Jesus. We continue to trust him. We continue to believe in him. And that's what Paul says. All of these things are yours, and they are yours because you have not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So anyone who moves away from the hope of the gospel, as I said, is either temporarily wandering or they've never had a true and lasting hope in the gospel. And so Paul then goes on, and just really quickly, I want to just work our way through the passage, and then we're going we're gonna to land finally at verse 27, and the Christ in you, the hope of glory. But let's just work through this. He says, concerning the gospel, he says, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of whom I, Paul, became a minister. What does it mean that the gospel was preached to every creature under heaven? It just simply means not that in Paul's day, every single human being had heard the gospel, Some people have mistakenly thought Paul was saying that and said, Paul was wrong. Everybody hadn't heard the gospel. Uh, That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that the message of the gospel is for everyone. It's a message that was preached in the sense that Christ came and brought this message to the whole world. This message is not limited to one group of people. It's not limited to one culture or one nationality or one race. It is a universal message. And now in verse 24, he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Now, now this is interesting because if you remember, I think we pointed this out initially, that Paul had never actually met or been to Colossae. Remember Epaphras, who is Paul's associate. Epaphras is from Colossae. Epaphras is more than likely the one who started the church. And so Paul's base of operation was in Ephesus, and it was from Ephesus that all those, it says in Acts, all those in Asia heard the word of the gospel through the mouth of Paul as he was based there in Ephesus. So as we pointed out, Epaphras, this man from Colossae, he undoubtedly heard the message from Paul in Ephesus. He was converted. He took it back to his community. He began to share the gospel. So Paul's never been there. But yet he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. So the the question that I ask as I read that is, how was it that Paul was suffering for the Colossians? And one thing I think just in a general sense we could say is that Paul's suffering imprisonment was because of the gospel. Paul continually put his own life at risk, which 
then would lead to suffering, in this case, imprisonment, for the sake of the gospel, and the Colossians had benefited from that. So it was because Paul was willing to risk his life, and that landed him in prison, but yet it was that risk that allowed the gospel to go forth to the extent that the Colossians had received it. So it could be that's what Paul's talking about when he's referring to the suffering. But I like what N.T. Wright suggested. He said, it seems as though he, Paul, is drawing the enemy fire. And this is what he means. As long as Paul stays in prison, those who are opposed to the gospel imagine they have gunned it down. And concentrating on Paul and giving him a bad time, they are not bothering about the young Christians who are growing up around them. I think that's a good take on it. So those that were against the gospel, those that were constantly trying to undermine the gospel, now that Paul's in prison, they think, okay, we've accomplished our task. And they're satisfied with that. And so they're not bothering to try to harass or persecute the Colossians. And so it could be that that's what Paul is talking about. It's his imprisonment. It's the fact that he's sort of drawn the fire away from them. And they're able to grow without that persecution that would inevitably come from the influence of these false teachers. But notice what Paul says beyond that. He says, I now rejoice in my suffering for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the affliction of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, this 24th verse is one that has caused confusion for centuries. This is a statement that many have really struggled to understand what in the world Paul is saying. What does it mean that he's filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? What does that mean? Is there anything lacking in the affliction of Christ? In other words, did Christ not suffer sufficiently to attain our salvation? Did, did Paul have to somehow contribute to that? Well, even as I say it, that sounds ridiculous, right? It's because it is ridiculous, because that's not what it means. But believe it or not, there have been those who thought that that is what Paul meant. But it can't mean that there was something lacking in Christ's suffering to redeem us from sin, and that Paul now had to add his suffering to Christ for redemption to be complete, that would contradict the very words of Jesus himself. On the cross, what did Jesus say? His final words on the cross were, it is finished. And that word could be translated, it is complete. Uh, it could be translated, the price has been paid in full. So in the sense of the redemptive aspect of, of the death of Christ, there's nothing lacking in that regard that Paul is somehow adding to. So then, what is it that he's talking about? Well, what it means is this. Until God completes his task of putting all Christ's enemies under his feet, Christ continues to suffer. Christ continues to undergo affliction to this very moment. He suffers the rejection of the world. 
He suffers the daily mocking and blasphemy of his name. He suffers the persecution that his people experience for his namesake. Remember when Paul was persecuting the church while he was Saul of Tarsus, and he was on his way to Damascus to apprehend those that were there, that he might bring them back and imprison them in Jerusalem. And remember when he was on the road, and then suddenly this light shines around him, and it's the Lord. And remember what the Lord says. The Lord says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? You see, as much as Paul was persecuting the believers, what was he doing? He was persecuting the body of Christ, and therefore he was persecuting Christ. So Christ, in that sense, was and still does to this day suffer affliction. So what Paul is saying is that his suffering is making up. He, in other words, he's saying that he is privileged to bear some of the brunt of the suffering that Christ is currently undergoing. So what is lacking in Christ's affliction just simply means the suffering that's still to come. Paul sees himself as being able to take a little bit of that on himself. And so it's true for any who suffer for Christ, that suffering is, a, is an extension of the suffering of Christ and it's suffering in a real sense for him. And so that's what Paul is referring to here. And he says that this is for the sake of his body, which is the church. And now verse 25, of which I became a minister. According to the stewardship, or the word could be translated, the administration from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So Paul became a minister of the gospel. He became a minister of the gospel, and there was a stewardship, an administration that was given to him. Another word that is sometimes substituted here is a dispensation. So it's talking about a specific task that God gave to Paul. And that specific task that God gave to Paul was that he was to fulfill the word of God by revealing the mystery which had been hidden from ages and from generations, but now had been revealed to the saints. So Paul has this calling. And he recognizes that. And his calling, remember, Paul is a Jew. Paul is not just a Jew. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He is a Pharisee. He is a person that you would look at and say, man, this guy's the ultimate weapon when it comes to bringing Jews to Christ. You would think that about him. But God calls Paul not to a primarily Jewish ministry, but he calls Paul to the Gentiles. And Paul says, God's given me this administration to preach the word among the Gentiles and to make this mystery known.
For the month of April, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, How the Gospel is Good News for Our Physical Selves by Sam Albury. The culture is obsessed with the physical body, whether it's the sexualization of a particular body type, gender dysphoria, what we do with our own body, or even body art, such as tattoos or piercings, our culture links the body with identity, which is how exactly is our body related to our personal identity. When it comes to identity, some may discount the physical body altogether or place too much emphasis upon it. But the body is neither everything, nor is it nothing. The body is an important part of who we are, because we are more than just a soul. If you want to know more about the link between the body, personal identity, and what the Bible says, or if you know someone struggling with identity or body image, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, How the Gospel is Good News for Our Physical Selves by Sam Albury. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Colossians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.